Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. It is Halloween, and I want you to do something very scary. Think back and remember yourself as you were in high school. I know, I'm sorry, terror abounds. Or if you're in high school now, just think about that. And that's plenty for you to be getting on with. Maybe you remember high school fondly. Good friends, some cool teachers, a team you were on, or a play you were in. Or maybe you remember it as a Silence of the Lambs-esque pit, only with more humiliation and worse skin. Chances are, it's somewhere between the two. In some ways, though, high school... It is a lot like Halloween, with everyone asking you what you're going to be, whether that means for one night or when you grow up. Meanwhile, you're still trying to figure out who you are. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project with a Halloween spooktacular. Coming up, a modern ghost story for radio lovers. I was really scared, but I was live on the radio. And I actually thought that maybe I would call out to the audience and ask one of them to call 911. And then I thought, what am I going to ask them to do? Call Ghostbusters? But first, when he was in high school, regular Doc Project contributor Richard Kelly Kemick set out to change his life one Halloween. He was at a new school in a new suburb and had a whole new crew of people to try and convince that he was cool. Now, 20 years later, and with the help of some old high school classmates, Richard is looking back to try to figure out what went so, so wrong. Heads up, there is some cussing in this story. Consider your ears and sensibilities warned. All right, here's Richard. They used... The good towels. If there is one fact beyond doubt, it is this. They used the good towels. The faces and the voices have disintegrated with the years, but the good towels are those Bronze Age bodies found in the bog, wet and crumpled and not knowing time. For grade 10, I had enrolled at Central Memorial, a high school 90 minutes beyond the borderlands of my suburban Calgary postal code. It was the anonymity of a fresh start, made all the more thrilling by the gusto of a school whose official motto was, slam it, jam it, ram it. So in mid-September of that year, I asked my parents if I could host a Halloween party. They agreed, but only on the condition I limit it to the basement. 
Your mom and I might have a partay of our own, my father said. But I shrugged him off, for I knew that partay actually meant invite over Donna and Margaret to play cards in the living room and talk about the price of beef. I returned to my Canadian Tire catalog's seasonal decorations. What a loser, I said to the severed limbs. Central Memorial was a school divided. Due to declining numbers in its catchment area, the school adopted alternative programming to draw students from Calgary at large. This is why I had transferred there. Half the building was the National Sports Academy, while the other half was the School of Performing and Visual Arts. Somewhere between these halves was also the smattering of poor souls whose designated high school remained Central Memorial. It must have been like living in the laneway betwixt the Montagues and the Capulets. That reference should, if there were any doubt, affirm your suspicions as to which side I was on. My partner, Latia, loves to bring it up at parties. Richard took drama, she tells the room. Can you believe it? Theater, I say. I studied theater and improv, she adds. I wanted the party to be American in size. So I invited students from the four corners of the arts department. The ragtag creative writers, the long-legged dancers, the grunge painters. Most invitations, however, were for my 40-person acting class. At the top of the list was the social gentry. Caitlin, who did voiceovers for Japanese cartoons. Hana, whose name was spelt Hannah, but insisted the pronunciation was different and Tommy, who bought hair gel by the oil barrel. Then, too, there was Dylan, whose bleary eyes told tales of distant lands, and his girlfriend, Sarah R., who even amidst the scouring winds of autumnal Alberta, always showed the midriff. But above them all was Nick Wilson. Nick Wilson was the only student who had traversed the artist-athlete divide. He was leading man material while also playing some sort of full-contact position on the football team. He quoted old-timey movies, could identify trucks, and sang Tom Petty covers on acoustic guitar. He could slam it, he could jam it, he could ram it, and he did it all while wearing t-shirts so tight you could see his soul. You see, the Halloween party was to be my debutante ball the announcement of my arrival into the world. For at that time, nobody knew who I was. Indeed, I myself did not know. There were moments when I had glimpses. Brushing my guinea pig, or tending my vegetable garden, or rehearsing with my ventriloquist dummy in front of the mirror. I have had a suspicion for a very long time that I am not any fun. It just seems so effortless for everyone else, this act of having a good time. But the party was to change all this. 
Within the stack of invitations I held in my hands was also the opportunity to rewrite my character. It was to be a transformation so total and final that I wanted the multitudes to witness it. Among these faceless masses were Alex, Jocelyn, and Lindsay. Just so you know, the White Claw is really hitting right now. The White Claw I'm drinking is hitting me, Richard. This is Lindsay, whom I have corralled into a Zoom happy hour slash interrogation. I'm very excited to hear what you're going to ask me. Do you remember me inviting you to the party? No, I don't remember that, but I remember the feeling. I was excited for the party because I had a crush on you, Richard. On me. I had a, a, a deep crush on you that was... Tell me more, tell me more about this deep crush. <laughs> it was... <laughs> As the smugness of my tone may insinuate, I've long known about this crush. Also, you can't see it, but I'm swirling a gin and tonic in a crystal tumbler, savoring this aspect of the past. But I was not aware of this crush at the time of the party. I had a big crush on you. And I guess at that point, we'd only known each other September and October, taking drama together. Right. Yeah, like a few weeks. So maybe that's why I had a huge crush on you. I didn't know who you were. (laughs) (laughs) Lindsay is not the only one on this call. In the Zoom room, too, with a chilled bottle of rosé, is Jocelyn. Uh, Jocelyn, do you remember Do you remember being invited to the party? No. Not even a little bit. Do you remember any sort of lead up to the party? No. But it must have been, in hindsight, it must have been my first high school party. Right, right. And maybe I was nervous that there would be drinking because I don't think right. I'd ever had a drink before. Jocelyn describes herself as a naive 15. But Lindsay saw her differently. You had the beautiful long blonde hair and you had like like the very on-trend look at the time. And I remember thinking like, whoa, she is a teenage girl, <laughs> you know? And I actually felt like I was still in a training bra when I knew you. That was the vibe I felt. And then the final player, who is cracking a monosyllabic German beer called Dob. Alex... Do you remember me inviting you to the party? For some reason, I have a memory of inviting me. Really? Uh, The listeners should know, just in case they're not picking up on our tone. No one likes (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) I'm scandalized right now. I saw a few years ago on the street and she pretended I didn't exist. Well, Don't. Okay, okay. Before, okay. Let's, let's pivot. <laughs> At the start of grade 10, Jocelyn, Lindsay, and Alex could best be described as chorus line. Good enough to be cast, but in a role without a name. Firefighter 3, Gangster 8, Picnic Goer. They each had their qualities. Jocelyn dressed so fashionably she seemed plucked from the business district. 
Lindsay treated the world as a daytime talk show she was hosting. And Alex had a set of eyes that were so round and innocent, you swore you had seen them in an SPCA commercial. But none of them possessed that mythical trait of popularity, the perfect eclipsing of the inner and outer selves that gravitationally pulls people towards you. Though nearly 20 years have passed, I can still conjure them, crystal clear in our acting classes warm-up circle, our daily trills. I can see Alex tucking his chin to bluff a baritone he cannot reach, while Lindsay, bend in her knees, compensates for tune with volume. I can see Jocelyn is singing, except not singing, betrayed by the stillness of her throat that her open mouth is only an act. And then, in divine contrast, I can see Nick Wilson, his t-shirt so snug that his torso shines through the fabric with a holy light as he shoves his hands into his pockets, throws back his head, and hits high C. But when I turn to myself at that age, the lens is fogged. Lindsay. Do you remember like your first like your first impressions of me either at the beginning of September or even like the end of October leading into the party? Tall, skinny. Um listeners should know I'm now short and buff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Um you're incredibly tall. Um you were slender. Also, very, very funny, very outgoing. You were like the person in our drama class that when we would each get to speak in circle, which is how we started every class, everyone gets to say what they did on the weekend or something. You always had like a big story. You were always funny. It was always animated. That's interesting. I, that is interesting to say that I would not have characterized myself that or that, that's not how I remember myself. Yes. Well, that was the mask you were wearing at the time. Uh, yeah. Alex, do you remember anything? <laughs> I do. Um, I, re- I have a very distinct memory of the first day of drama class. I told Lindsay this a couple of years ago. I did think you were gay. Um, so you thought at that time that I was gay. Did you think that you yourself, did you know that you yourself were gay at that time? I was struggling with that inner dialogue. Yeah. I spent the month of October spending my dishwasher's paycheck. I frequented the aisles of Canadian Tire so ceaselessly that the cashiers began to refer to me as the boy. As in, the boy is back and needs someone to help him carry the inflatable coffin. Or, the boy wants another price match on polyester spider webbing. This nickname, however, was a substantial upgrade from mine at my former school, which was Rich the Bitch. Everything was already improving. Lindsay. Yes. What were your expectations and hopes going into this party? Wow. Uh, I feel vulnerable saying this. Uh, I... I think I wanted to tell you that I had a crush on you. Mm-hmm. I I actually know that I wanted to tell you I had a crush on you. I am thinking about that now as a 31-year-old woman and thinking, why? Why did you need to say it then? 
But yeah, I guess two months of being around you, I couldn't handle not saying it anymore. So I wanted to tell you I had a crush on you. The animal magnetism was too much. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The night of the party arrived. I had grown so accustomed to throwing parties no one attended, I could have hardly anticipated the cavalcade of cars at the curb. My father, at the front door, kept on welcoming people to the party before ushering them downstairs as my mother, from the living room, called out that it was his turn to deal. Jocelyn, do you remember the party? So... Yes. You'd done some decorating. That was A clear. lot of decorating. Thank you for finally bringing it up. <laughs> 20 years later. So I remember being like, oh, it's in a basement. <laughs> and there being light, maybe Christmas lights strung up. And I was like, okay, that's a choice. <laughs> and maybe some streamers. And, uh... And some maybe candy, you know, in the big bowls. (laughs) It was in a basement with no windows, correct? Yes. Right. I don't remember being in that space since knowing you the last, how long have we known each other? 20 years? I don't think I've been in that space since. (laughs) It's too emotionally charged. In the basement, me and my hors d'oeuvres were quickly overwhelmed. The conveyor belt of guests continued to arrive, squeezing shoulder to shoulder, cowboy hat to top hat, sexy rabbit ear to sexy mouse ear. Even Olympus had descended. Those young gods of Caitlin, Tommy, and, dressed as a football player, Nick Wilson. But despite the crowd, nothing happened. Jalapeno popper, I kept offering the room. Jalapeno popper? During the lag between songs of my creepy-crawly soundtrack, we heard my parents in the living room above laughing at a joke Donna or Margaret had told. If T.S. Eliot is correct, and the world will end not with a bang but a whimper, the party's apocalypse arrived with the soft sound of Sarah R., dressed as a fairy, crying. She and her boyfriend, Dylan, were arguing about what no one can remember. But at one point, Sarah R. stopped her sniveling and turned to Dylan, who was dressed as a literal piece of poo, and she punched him hard in the throat. It was not the punch that changed us, but the absence of consequence. Here, in the belly of the earth, we were beyond the laws of civilization. It terrified me, but electrified the rest, and the basement became imbued with the paws of a prison, ripe for riot. From the crowd, the plastic crack of a bottle being opened. Does anyone know who snuck alcohol in? I No, I, I know I remember people were drinking. Right. And that made me nervous. Did you all drink? I don't think I drank a drop. I didn't either. No, I didn't. But we know people were drinking. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, that was clear. Heavily. That was clear by, like, (sighs) midpoint. At any gathering of artist types, a single drop of liquor will turn them lunatic. 
each clamoring for the spotlight, each with a bloodier heart on the sleeve, each seeing the singular opportunity to let their boiling sexual energy spout out of them. Andrew H. and Christopher, dressed as Beetlejuice and Buzz Lightyear, stuffed couch cushions beneath their shirts and sumo-wrestled into the most erotic of submissions. Emma, dressed as a witch, which was no stretch for she was a real-life Wiccan, launched her half-naked self off the desk and onto the crowd, only for the mob's bird-boned arms to be unable to hold her weight as she slammed into the drywall. Even the painters, dressed as some coterie of incomprehensible historical illusions, shook cans of Dr. Pepper and showered us with their sticky lust. I tried to section off the room for charades, but doing so was like organizing a wildebeest migration. Instead, the band kids insisted those not dancing join them in a game of spin-the-bottle, French-kiss level. I was appalled at not how vulgar the suggestion, but how cliché. A game absent of any tactics or deception. But as I closed my eyes to roll them, I remembered my purpose. To become someone who did not object. Someone who did not criticize. Someone who maybe owned a waterbed and who obviously preferred spin the bottle to risk the game of strategic conquest. As the host, I had first spin. And we all sat in a circle, and I remember thinking, now's my chance, if the fates allow. And uh, so I sat there, and I'm in full penguin garb, uh, and this penguin mask is actually kind of disturbing with weird eye holes, so I, of course, took off the penguin head, so I just looked like a person in an ill-fitting tuxedo. (laughs) I watched my father's empty homebrew bottle swivel on the carpet and come to rest, pointing at Penguin Lindsay. I remember feeling my whole body clench and thinking, this is going to be my first kiss. Oh my God, I'm going to have my first kiss and it's with a guy I like during Spin the Bottle and this is what high school is and I'm so excited. I crawled to the center of the circle. To meet her. I only knew about kissing from movies and TV. And when you watch that, it always starts slow. And so I went in with kind of like loose, loose lips ready to allow it to be kissing that gradually turned into more. And as I proceeded to the part of the kiss, how to say this, that defined the kiss as French. You ate my mouth like your whole mouth ate my mouth and i <laughs> remember going oh and then i was so shocked that without trying to do this i pushed you off me and i said you gross to which alex dressed as an escaped asylum patient wondered aloud how bad a kisser i would have to be to disgust a penguin don't they he asked eat raw fish to which everyone in the circle went, oh, like I had completely emasculated you in front of everyone. And then I remember going, no, 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 I didn't mean it that way. And I saw for a microsecond that vulnerable expression on your face as though I had kicked you in the balls. And I thought, well, 
the only way I can fix this scenario after humiliating him in front of everyone at his own party is if I tell him my feelings. So I walked around the side of the circle and I whispered to you, hey, Richard, I have something to tell you. You looked at me like, what do you want? And I said, I like you. And you said, you gave me two thumbs up and you went, cool. And it destroyed me. Until she recounted this on Zoom, I had forgotten about Lindsay's whispered confession. During that spin the bottle game, her admission to me, which now seems so unadorned and honest, a feat which I was decades away from being able to replicate, was instead irrelevant, for hers was not the favor I fancied. Shunned from the French kiss circle, I retreated to the top of the basement stairs and surveyed the pandemonium below. The fiber optic skull tossed like a beach ball, a handful of dancers teaching the band kids how to grind, while Tommy, sans costume, feigned oral sex with my ventriloquist dummy. But most importantly was what I did not see. Or rather, who? Nick Wilson had left. And really my clearest memory of this party, the thing that stands out the most, is, is sitting in the basement and hearing that something had gone wrong. In the Chemic House, there were three rooms that my brother and I were not allowed in unsupervised. My parents' bedroom, my father's wood shop, and the guest bathroom. But because the very nature of the deeds done in a bathroom forwent supervision, my brother and I were simply forbidden from this room. When Donna or Margaret would venture into so sacred a space, I would watch, amazed, as they nonchalantly exited to the sound of the toilet tank refilling. The guest bathroom had its own candles, its own lotions, its own decorative starfish. And above all, it had its own towels. Like hearing in the way that, you know, like a bad game of telephone where you're like, what happened? I had left the basement to search for Nick Wilson. I remember standing before the ajar bathroom door. I remember hearing my father from the living room saying, Can you believe it? $4.99 a pound for sirloin. I remember the light around the hinges and the shuffle of shadows. I remember the sharpness of my gasp. I was sitting on the ground a lot. Um, and then I remember at one point, Hannah being drunk to the point that she was going to be sick. And for some reason, I felt it essential that I needed to carry her to the bathroom, which was on the next level. And so I carried her up the stairs. And I, I do remember looking to my right to your uh, kitchen area where your parents and their poor, poor friends were sitting and carrying her into the bathroom completely just ramming her head into the doorway by accident <laughs> on the way in and then her projectile vomiting before we could get the toilet seat up. For a room full of high school thespians, young adults fated to work in the customer service industry, they proved inept at mopping a floor. I don't, I don't know why I thought just grab the towels and start cleaning that up. 
Instead of wiping up the vomit of jalapeno poppers, they simply pushed it from one corner to the other, lacquering the linoleum. And I was like, oh my God, people were drinking. It's happened. Like at the high school party, someone's been drinking and puked in the bathroom and someone used the good towels to wipe it up. They used the good towels. <laughs> so clear. That's my clearest memory of this party is good towels. As the group smeared the puke and Hana, dressed as a hell's angel, offered me a $5 bill and an apology, I steadied myself against the vanity. The room was so new to me that I was taken aback by the boy on the other side of the sink. Because, did I tell you my own costume? I had dressed up as Nick Wilson. I'd wrapped my biceps with tensor bandages and squeezed into a child's t-shirt. And I had put my arm in a sling and face-painted on a black eye, alluding to some concussive tackle. And for a flicker, I thought my reflection was not mine, but Nick Wilson's. And so I had fulfilled my Halloween wish and had become who I wanted to be. But when I noted the tremble of Nick Wilson's lower lip, the mirage dispersed and only myself remained. And then I remember you, Richard, coming in and just in this really like sad, like small, defeated voice, just being like, not the good towels. (laughs) 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 There are moments, rare, when the world answers the questions that you dare not. It was as if I had been given the script to my life and read everything from character description to conclusion, and nowhere existed for me the stage directions of slam it, jam it, ram it. Instead, I saw the line of Rich the Bitch saying, you used the good towels. Why is it so hard to know yourself? The souls of others shine through their very t-shirts while the space in your own chest remains obscured. I always find it hilarious talking to you, Alex, or any of you at this point in our lives about what you thought of yourselves in high school. And it's so polar opposite of the image presented that I took in. Like Alex will often tell me, oh, I was terrified. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to blend. And to me, he was the prom king. It's just, I think we were all having an inner monologue that we weren't sharing. I returned to the basement reeking of demi-digested jalapeno poppers, which thankfully smell indistinguishable from jalapeno poppers fresh out the oven. The party was in a state of implosion. My ambient music had been replaced by the cranked volume of Country 105, the Heartland's greatest hits. And over top the twang, Sarah R., like Ophelia by the brook, was careening between sadness and madness, tears and rage. In the center of the room, Jocelyn, dressed as a sexy mouse, was making out with Andrew S., who was dressed as Donald Trump. It was a different time. And the suction of their coupling could only be described as 
deep-cleaning technology. Lindsay, meanwhile, had penguin-walked her heartbreak out for some air. And then I hung out on some weird back patio you had, where you had like a chair that rocks back and forth. That swing was only for guests. And no one was supposed to be on that. <laughs> that was the next logical step, is to go cry in some suburban backyard on a swing. And Alex came out, and I cried. And Alex hugged me and made me feel better. And it was one of the first times that Alex and I ever, like, had a consoling each other moment. And you were totally there for me. My streamers dangled from the ceiling. My after eights strewn across the floor. And my ventriloquist dummy, post-coital, was cast limbs akimbo on the air hockey table. Sarah R. then slammed her fist against the light switch, and all that existed was darkness. Nick Wilson refused to be interviewed for this piece. He now works for municipal government, and because of his fancy city hall job, he insisted I change his name, which I have begrudgingly done. I spoke with him on the phone for the first time in 15 years, but he wouldn't budge. And besides, he said, I remember nothing of that party. Anything, I said. Nothing, he said. Even one thing, I said. Nothing, he said. In my voice, I heard that lurch of desire. Even, I said, what you dressed up as? Nothing, he said. When the basement's fluorescence flickered back on, someone was standing beside me. It was Nick Wilson, sort of. For at some point in the evening, he had ascended the basement, walked through the parental purgatory of 99-cent ground beef, and upstairs into my bedroom, where he had taken off his football uniform and put on my cardigan and on his head was my winter toque with the ear flaps. And so, as I turned to him, it was as if I were turning to myself, and was so relieved that my reflection held neither malice nor mockery, longing nor fear, but only contentment. It was, truly, one of the kindest things anyone has ever done for me. As abruptly as the evening began, it ended. The cavalcade of cars returning promptly at 11.15 p.m. When the last guest left, followed by Donna and Margaret, my father looked at me and said, That was fun. And then my mother's voice from the guest bathroom. What the frick is this? I, I did feel that that was like... It, it was like a turning point. Um, in our drama class for anyone who was there because of how much of a shit show it was I feel like it did bring a lot of us close together but I do I do remember later being like that was a high school party the night turned into morning and from the rooftop outside my bedroom 
I watched the first sunrise of November spill itself over the shingled roofs. If the future had been shaped like Calgary suburbs, flat enough to see all of existence sprawl before you, I could have peered into the middle distance to see a 1988 Toyota Land Cruiser fishtail around the meridians, the roar of the engine as Jocelyn, sitting shotgun, insists we play London time, which is when we count how long Alex can drive on the wrong side of the road. And just beyond that, I see the swing sets of chugged liquor and the black box theaters of one-act plays and the two-for-one piercing studio where we use fake IDs to get matching tattoos in a language none of us speak. Then, too, flutters the handbill for Lindsay's improv show and the feigned gasp of Alex's coming out. I was so happy to have friends. I was just so pleased to be a part of something and have friends and be on Inside Jokes. I'd never been on Inside Jokes before, and for the first time in my life, like, finally I got to be cool. And if I could have seen further still, beyond the cul-de-sacs and ornamental chimneys, I would have seen that seven years to the day from the night of the good towels, I would attend another Halloween party. This one hosted by Jocelyn at a house in Burnaby slated for demolition. Alex and Lindsay had recently moved to Toronto, and I was nervous around Jocelyn's university friends, so I invited a woman from work. She dressed as a cat burglar, I as the sun. It would be the night the first picture of just the two of us was taken. And on the long walk home, I saw that someone had left an unopened jug of homogenized milk on a bus bench, and I clapped with joy at finding four liters of free milk, and Latia turned to me, her whiskers crinkling into a smile, and said, I feel like I know you now. And a decade has now passed. There is one night a year that we want to be scared when we court fear. Though the fear comes not from putting on the costume, but taking it off, and that quivering thrill in glimpsing what we cannot escape. Do you now have good towels? No, because Latia keeps on fucking them up. (laughs) Yeah, I used to. I I try to. Yeah, who has good towels? I don't even have good towels now. The Night of the Good Towels was written and produced by Richard Kelly Kemick with Jennifer Warren. It was edited by me, AC Rowe, with Andrew Friesen. Richard, Jocelyn, Lindsay, and Alex have now been friends for 20 years. And you can see a photo of them all together at their high school graduation with Richard towering above the rest like a blondie slender man. That's on our website, cbc.ca slash docproject. There you can also find links to some other stories Richard has done with us, including one about his obsession with miniature Christmas villages. This guy, what can I say? He loves himself a holiday and a catalog. Okay, we will be back in a minute with a right, proper ghost story. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called 
Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. You know that feeling you get when you can sense that someone is watching you? The little hairs on your arm stand up, and the back of your neck does that creepy, crinkly thing? Let's try it right now. You, driving in your car, and you... Standing in your kitchen. I can see you. Okay, I can't. And that was creepy in all the wrong ways. But staff at the ye old CKUA radio station building in downtown Edmonton, they know exactly what that eerie, someone is watching me feeling is like. When you walk in the front door of the building, it's almost creepy in a sense that you're walking through the glass doors and then you're in this little alcove. And if you don't know where you're going, you have no clue. There's just a nondescript gray elevator and two metal doors. That is Chris Martin, not the Coldplay guy. This Chris was a DJ at CKUA in the 90s. He worked the overnight shift from midnight until two in the morning. When you get up to the third floor on the elevator, a lot of small rooms scattered along these long corridors. Not a lot of windows, a lot of gray walls. It it definitely has an an ominous presence to it. The radio station was housed in a building called the Alberta Block. But it wasn't just the building that gave people the heebie-jeebies. Shortly after Chris started working at the station in 1995, his new colleagues started to ask him a very specific question. Have you seen the ghost? Have you seen the ghost? Have you, you know, and I'm thinking, well, what ghost? And eventually you come to learn from fellow employees or, you know, ghost aficionados around town. Oh, yeah, the building's haunted. Because it is just not Halloween without a classic ghost story. Here's a new favorite made for radio lovers. Doc Project producer and Edmonton's own Tanera McLean will take it from here. The Alberta Block Building is in the middle of Edmonton, along Jasper Avenue, the main road through downtown. It was built in 1909, and had a few iterations over the years as a furrier, an old bank, a barber shop, and some small offices. Today, though, if you don't know its history, you'd drive by and not think it was anything special or even old. It's had a modern makeover, with black steel-trimmed windows and doors, clean brick and wood paneling. The building was the old home for CKUA radio station between 1955 and 2012. And staff say during that time, a ghost haunted the place. It was probably a few weeks or months after I started working at CKUA that I started hearing comments uh, about the ghost within the building. My name is Ken Regan. I'm the former CEO of the CKUA radio network in Alberta. The legend of the ghost uh, goes back to the early 1950s. According to the legend, there was a custodian or caretaker in the building who was a, a man named Sam. I don't know what Sam's last name was. 
And according to the story, Sam uh, had been lobotomized because at some point in his life he had threatened the premier. So Sam used to walk the halls and sing opera and smoke cigars. That were, those were things that he loved to do while he was making his rounds and doing cleaning and whatever. And again, the story goes that Sam died on the job one night at CKUA and that afterwards, months, years, decades after this incident, people working late at CKUA or working in the building from time to time would hear someone singing opera or they would smell cigar smoke in, a, in the building or in an area of the building where there were no other people. Ken says he's a skeptic about ghosts and hauntings, but some of the stories he's heard about Sam over the years are pretty compelling. People who I have great respect for and whom I trust and who I know are not the kind of people that would invent these kinds of stories told me of things that had happened to them. A former technical producer and then later a host on a music producer on CKUA told me the story one time uh, about going into the women's washroom, which was on the fourth floor of the CKUA building. And she finished washing her hands. There was no one else in the in the washroom at the time. Turned off the taps, exited the washroom, and immediately upon exiting the washroom heard the taps turn on again. And she thought, well, that, that's funny. There was nobody in the washroom when I was there. So she went back in the washroom and the taps, the faucets on the sink, were both turned on. <laughs> so, and again, she's not the kind of person that, you know, is is fanciful or makes light of these things, but she was quite... Uh, startled at first, and also uh, a little bit unnerved. There are other stories about all of the taps being turned on in the building overnight, causing floods in the building, and things like keys disappearing, then reappearing later in the exact same spot. Of course, all of that could have a logical explanation. People misplace things all the time. Taps leak, right? But in 1997, Lark Clark, a longtime CKUA host, saw something she still can't explain. It was a couple of days before Christmas, and anyone who had anything else to do was gone. It was late at night. I was alone, and I heard footsteps coming down the narrow hallway to the broadcast booth. And I thought, who would be here in the building late at night on a Saturday night? And reception was locked, so whoever that was would have had to have a key to get past reception. So. They must be a CKUA person. But the steps were very heavy. Sounded like a man who was 
tired. Not lifting up his feet, shuffling down the hall. But I was on air, live. I leaned forward towards the mic to read the notes from the CD I was playing. And a light shone through the window behind me and reflected on the glass wall in front of me. It was a really strange light. It was kind of like a, a silvery glow. It didn't seem to have a source so much as an eminence. And in that silvery light was a profile of a man's face, a man's head, passing by the window behind me. But I was in mid-sentence, and it was live to air. And these steps continued. And I thought, who's walking down this hallway and not acknowledging me, not greeting me, not stopping by the door to wait till I'm finished? I was really scared. But I was live on the radio. And I had a hard time thinking what to say because all I could think about was who was this man standing behind me in the hallway. And I actually thought that maybe I would call out to the audience and ask one of them to call 911. And then I thought, what am I going to ask them to do? Call Ghostbusters? After years of hearing these stories, Ken decided to get to the bottom of what was happening in the building. Probably 2008, 2009, people from the what was then the Edmonton Paranormal Society contacted me and they thought it would be interesting to do an actual investigation to see if there was any kind of paranormal activity in the CKUA building. When I hear a place is haunted, see, I'm, I'm still the skeptic of the team. I have to be. Beth Fowler is a lead investigator with the Society. She and a small team spent a night in the basement of the CKUA building to see if they could detect any paranormal activity. When we go in, what we do is we do a lot of baseline tests and we do other tests to rule out things. Um, for instance, uh, one of the reports for a while was that people in the basement would hear voices. And uh, the problem with the basement, you had a hundred-year-old boiler and a whole bunch of other machinery. And if you stand in that for a long time, it causes almost an audio hallucination, which kind of sounds like you do hear people speaking, but it's, but it's, uh, it's explainable. So that, that wasn't paranormal. So we look for things like that before we can actually get really into uh, the base of the investigation. Beth's team used K2 electromagnetic readers called EMF meters. They set up night vision cameras and hunkered down for a night in the basement, completely in the dark. But in the end, most of what happened has a rational explanation. Some sounds were just pipes creaking or the building settling overnight because it's an old building. When you're doing paranormal investigations and you're actually trying to find answers to questions that are out there, you have to be as logical as possible. 
and you have to rule out everything that you can. The investigation didn't really answer any questions. But a couple of days later, Ken got a call from Beth. They reviewed everything that they had recorded that night, just in case they'd missed something. And one of the things they had done was set up a stationary camera. On the locked-off camera, we caught the... It sounded like two girl, uh, little girls singing, Go Back, Go Back. What you're hearing is an original recording from the night of the investigation. It's a little hard to hear, but the sound changes to a higher rhythmic pitch, and there's a bit of an echo. Here, have another listen. And it was kind of like a flash of sound. To me, it didn't register as much as singing as it was speaking, but it sounded to me like there was something on that recording of a child, child's voice saying, go back, go all the way back. Even after hearing the recording, Ken is still pretty skeptical. But he does admit he can't explain it. CKUA moved out of the Alberta block in 2012, the same year Beth and her team did another investigation. But again, they couldn't find anything to say for sure there was any paranormal activity. Even after all of these years, the haunting of CKUA is a popular story in Edmonton. It's featured each year on ghost tours and Halloween roundups. Hearing this story brought up a second question. Not is the building haunted or are ghosts real, but did Sam even exist? I did some digging in the provincial and city archives. There is no public record involving somebody named Sam threatening the premier, which, you know, would have made the daily news if it did happen. There is, though, a record of somebody named Sam living at the Alberta block in the 1950s, but he wasn't a caretaker. I did find records about a caretaker named Lewis who worked at the Alberta block. He died in the 1970s. But there's no record of either man threatening the premier, being lobotomized, or dying in the building. Whether the legend of Sam is real, I guess we'll never know. But I suppose truly good legends always have more questions than they do answers. Lark Clark, Ken Regan, Beth Fowler, and Chris Martin. That doc was produced by Tanera McLean. It was edited by Sherry O'KK. And Tanera says, Though she couldn't find any information that would conclusively say the legend of Sam is based in truth in the public records, that's not to say he didn't exist. 
If you weren't able to quite make out the creepy, supposed kid voices in the recording that the Alberta Paranormal Investigator Society made, we shared their video on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash docprojectcbc. So you can take a look and a listen and see what you think. I will say that the first time I heard it was a few nights back when Tanera sent it around to the whole team. And because apparently the ring taught me nothing, I hit play, which meant that I very quickly went from having a cozy hooger candle and book evening to a super creeped out grainy video and supposed haunting evening. So have fun with that. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Tanera McLean, Sherry OKK, Allison Cook, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer, and our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I am AC Rowe, and I'm going to let the big guy sign off for me this week, Vincent Price. The castle lights are growing dim. There's no one left but me and him. When next we meet in Frankenstone, don't come alone. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.